It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, listener. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Whatever you love to talk about, we know there are listeners out there who will love to hear it. Whether you're an expert, a super fan, or just want to speak your mind, start sharing your passion with a podcast and your audience will follow. With Acast, it couldn't be easier to get started. You can create, launch, grow, and make money across all listening apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. There are listeners out there for every type of podcast, so let's hear it. Head over to ACAST.com to get started for free. Joining me on Strange Boat this time is Adam Penning. Adam's recognised as one of the finest carp anglers around, has designed and developed many items of specialised tackle now considered standard, and worked for a couple of the biggest names in the carp angling world. He's also a superb communicator, and has written one of the best thought out and produced fishing books it's been my pleasure to read. Yes mate, it's you I'm talking about, how are you going? Well, I, I should be. I, I need to write all that down. That's a, that's very, very kind of you. I'm very flattered and humbled. Thank you, Keith, for an absolute gentleman. Cheers for that. Mate. Uh, you're very welcome. Hang on, we haven't come to the end yet. When we come to the end, you might feel something different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we we fished together a few times over the years. Always, I think, always for work. And um, and now you work a bit of fishing. But let, let's let's go back to the beginning and where, where did your fishing start oh so um my fishing started very much i mean most people get into fishing because of their dads really i get well, how did you get into it was your dad the, no or, no no the, the only anger in my family was my um grandmother's father Right, and they live. No, it's you interviewing me. Um, they they came from Plymouth, and he used to fish in Plymouth Dockyard. He he was a um, sort of a guard in Plymouth Dockyard, a Plymouth Dockyard, and okay. uh, he fished there. But nobody else in the family ever fished. Right. Okay. Well, we're we're both a little bit unusual then, because most get into it uh, from a paternal route, don't they? But um, exactly. I, I would say no. For me, it was a guy at school, um, and um, Tony, his name was, and he was a very keen angler. Had a family of anglers. His mum and dad both fished, 
He had a wonderful fish tank in his hallway, which um, really caught my imagination before I had even become an angler. I used to stop and he'd tell me um, the different species. He had um, chub and gudgeon and roach and perch in this tank. It was lovely. And um, Tony took me under his wing, really. He, he said, do you want to come fish in? So um, I, I didn't have any, any gear or, or idea. And um, But he, he took me along. We went down to a local river in uh, Harlow, Essex, where I was sort of, spent those years and um, we used to float fish for gudgeon that was the first thing we did so we strap our rods to our bikes and we'd be off down to the river at first light and we would just sit there float fishing for gudgeon and it was absolutely to coin a phrase halcyon days wonderful wonderful times and and it sort of evolved from there really um, into bigger fish and different fish and so on but that was where it started. Yeah, so I used to cycle down to uh, lower down that river and, and into its main tribute. In, into that's I'm, I'm presuming you're talking about the stalt, are you? Yes, that's it, mate. You yeah. know, you main are. Oh, tri- <laughs> you're so learned. It's incredible. Yes, <laughs> main tributary the Lee, and I used to cycle and fish the Lee. It wasn't quite so salubrious where I was. I used to fish at Tottenham Hale, um, <laughs> which was in those days a real industrial um, yes. hub. You know, yes. working barges going up and down the river to Edmonton to the furniture factories, but that's a, that's an, another story for another day. So <laughs> I, I'm also surprised that your mate had an authentic tank. You know, if I'd have looked at my mates and 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 my um, peers' fish tanks, I'd now be feeding you for mollies and garamis and guppies and oscars yeah. and, and things yeah. like that. So yeah, how lovely that he had a freshwater tank. We'd we'd course our course fishing that must be superb very very rare to see even had a couple yeah. of um uh of, um, rent, um native crayfish in it and um yeah it was just a lovely natural habitat and as, as you're, you're dead right it's all fantails and guppies in people's tanks but it's <laughs> a freshwater tank is is a, a very rare joy to see and uh, and and uh, do you are uh, you know how wonderful gudgeon are aren't gudgeon yeah, yeah. absolutely fantastic and i haven't they caught are. gudgeon for too long and just sitting here talking about float fishing um i mean i've just moved up to uh, a, a, a village called bramford up in um uh, in suffolk and it's it's sort of just to, off to one side of ipswich out in the in the in i know the exactly where you are you do. I thought you might. <laughs> well, I, I, I was a diver rep in that area, wasn't I? So I called on Breakaway oh, Tackle. We were in Brantford. That's exactly where they were. Yeah, I don't even. Are they still there? I don't know. I don't think I they think are, so. unfortunately. Well, they Dave. might be. I, I haven't seen one in the village, but um, yeah. So, um, it, it, so we've got the River Gipping, which is um, yeah. probably, as I look out the window, it's the other side of probably two hundred meters away from me, and. Um, I've walked it, you know, you know, it's like when you move in somewhere and you, you explore in the area and, and my son and I, we, we take off on these walks and we go along just at, just at dusk and, and try and see the, the swims where the roach are topping on dusk as I'm lining this up for some winter trotting and lovely river. The quality of the, the gipping is incredible, Keith, as you probably know, it's it's incredibly clear, a bit pacey in, in areas and um weedy and very very healthy but the thing that really gets me is that when I think back to those days on the store or on its associated tributaries like Pincy Brook and places like that when I used to go down those those um, uh, tributaries and streams and rivers back then you you didn't even need Polaroids but you would see chub everywhere shoals of chub you would see perch and it's it really saddens me now that I can walk 
a mile or two of the gipping and it's really notable if I see a group of four two pound chub and that's it one pocket of chub and two pockets of roach and and you just it's crying out for some investment I'm going to do some fundraising and see if I can get um, a bit of stocking going on or something because it's a lovely habitat but I'm going to anyway so anyway I, I just forgot what I was going to tell you so River and I, my son's my son's called River. So River and I, know, I were yeah. we're walking back along the river, and uh, it was two or three Sundays ago, and uh, there was this guy, like a proper, you, you know, when you see a proper angler. This was an old boy, and he was a proper angler. And I, we 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 stood and chatted to him for a minute or two, and he told me how he had taken off his stick float because the wind was interfering too much, and he had changed to the waggler. And so while we were talking to him, he started getting these net roach. Like every cast and he mm. said he had sat there all day nothing I mean it's only 15 20 yards wide nothing all day and then as soon as the light was going as you all know, well know these roach came on the feed and he was getting these 12 ounce 14 ounce fish well that was it for me I mean so we, what, he said he, he said he had had them up to one pound 14 ounces um, but that was but he qualified that he said that was two years ago but it just inflamed this excitement in me, Keith. And I, and I tell you what, although I'm a carp angler and that's what I do most of, if I have one day left on this earth to do any sort of fishing, I'd be trotting a little bit of river or stream, catching net roach for, for the day. Um, that would be me. What, what, would, what would be your perfect sign-off? <laughs> You've done a lot more different types than me, so it's hard <laughs> yeah. to answer, but... I tell you what, it wouldn't be far away from that. I wouldn't mind going and fishing, you know, somewhere, a, a, a nice bit of river or a bit of river that used to be nice where I used to live. You know, one of that, those kind of things. Yeah. Go back go back to how it was in the halcyon days of, you, you mentioned halcyon days of those rivers, like the rib and the stort and the bean and, and, mm. and, and when those rivers had lots of water and lots of pace and flow, etc. Now, of course, they're shadows of their former selves. And, and to get that kind of flow, you have to go somewhere like the, the, the Hampshire Avon or the Test or the Itchin, and, and they're not even like they used to be. I mean, but any, listen, if I have, yes, I'd, I'd probably go and, and, and hope for a two pounder and be very, very glad if I caught a pounder um, yeah, fishing, yeah. fishing a stick float with probably casters and throwing in a bit of hemp and caster and stuff. And, you know, it'd be a nice yeah. day. It'd be sort of 68 degrees and, yeah. and the wind would be sort of not, I don't like an upstream when I'm stick float fishing. I like it downstream and over my, over my shoulder. So okay. the wind is off my back and downstream. I think that that's my favorite for stick float. But anyway, so, love it, love it. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'll probably do that. You, you said you, you, you're you now a carp angler. When did that transition take place? You started as a caterpillar. You obviously <laughs> pupated somewhere. And, and then you hatched out as, as a red admiral of carp angler. <laughs> how, how did that work? Well, um, I'd have to take you back to the aforementioned school friend, Tony. And Tony... You, you have to imagine that for a couple of summers, Tony and I just caught gudgeon and maybe a perch or a chub approaching a pound. So, mm. you know, they, they were, you know, get towards a pound. That's That was serious stuff that didn't happen very often. So the moment that it changed for me was, uh, it was the, let me see, it was the 24th of July, 1985. And it was a summer's evening, or clearly a summer's evening, and the old Bakelite phone was ringing in the hallway. 
And uh, I went down, picked it up, and it was Tony. Tony was on the end of the phone, and he had just come home. It was about half eight in the evening. He had come home from a day's fishing with his dad, and they had been to a little lake in Harlow, Old Harlow, um, which had not long been open. And Tony was telling me this story of how he had caught this carp, which weighed, wait for it, eight pounds, 12 ounces. Right now, that you could not conceive anything as big as that. We couldn't. That was just, no. and he caught it on two maggots, float fished on a size fourteen hook, and well, that was it, mate. I, I was just. I mean, I've always been a little bit competitive, but the thought of that, and I thought Tony's just, just Tony's just reset the whole game. This is this is stuff of myth and legend. So, um, so I I got my paper round money and. Um, found out where the lake was, bought myself a day ticket, which was for two days hence, Friday the 26th of July, and I went there with the sole mission of catching a carp of some size, didn't know what I was doing, all I was set up for was float fishing, and later on that day, after many, many failures, I eventually caught a 12-pound common carp on floating crust and a bubble float, and that to me, it would be like to me now if I went carping with you and um, and I netted for you a seventy pounder. We our jaws would be on the floor, wouldn't they? You just absolutely you couldn't conceive a twelve pound common cop. It was inconceivable when you've only seen a twelve ounce perch or a fourteen ounce chub. Um, yeah, and that was it, Keith. That was that was my my birth as as a carp angler, and um, and it's been ninety nine percent of all the fishing that I've ever done since. Although you know, that's not something I'm particularly, well, not proud of isn't the right word. I would like to have done more varied fishing, but obviously because it's my job and my income, I love carp fishing with a passion. But the days of going down the Windrush, for example, when I was working at Drennan and um, catching barbel on, on um, sweet corn with a couple of shot pinched on the line, you know, I, I, I miss all that. And I am going to, as and harking back to what I said about the gipping, and my 13-foot float rod, my IMX super float, um, no, what is it? It's a, I've got an IMA uh, super stick, and I've got um, one of the more recent Drenum float rods. But they're going to come out of retirement. They are getting a dusting off this winter because <laughs> I, I love it. I just absolutely love it, and I just I need to fit it in. So, yeah, that was it. That was my, my birth as a carp angler, 26th of July, 1985. Yeah, fantastic. The great thing about that is, as you mentioned, <clears throat> going to the river, my river tackle now lives in something the size of a shopping bag. Um, and it's got like an old, a, a normal size tackle box, like the old Stuart boxes, you'll remember, with yeah. some stick floats in it, a couple of wagglers, a bit of shot, loads and loads of packets of hooks for some reason, all various, all, all between 12 and 20, yeah. uh, and mostly sort of 16s, 18s and 20s. And uh, a disgorger, and, and and that's all I take with me now. I, I'm, I'm normally standing up. If not, I've got you know, I sit on the bag. So yeah. it, and, and yeah. that's all I need. Um, <laughs> when when it's not a match, it's entirely different. Um, and a that's bait lovely. apron, of course. That's lovely. So, that's yeah, lovely. But, but, you, but you used to do a lot of match fishing. Do you, do you miss that? Uh, yeah, I, I I do. And and I mean, we we can talk about that with work and fishing because. You know, you've mentioned already working for Pete Drennan and 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 becoming part of the carp of the fishing tackle industry, primarily based around carp fishing. Uh, I I I find it very hard now to not fish for work because right. I've fished for work for so long 
that replaced match fishing because I wouldn't go fishing if it wasn't a match. It was a waste of time. What's, you know, I remember you saying that, yeah. Yeah, yeah I can't go down the river and catch a dace every throw if I want to. And, and why would I want to go down and do that when I know I can do it? it yeah. So so when I went carp fishing with you, it was fantastic because I was learning something new and, and, and being involved in a different part of the industry, same as when I started fly fishing, et cetera, et cetera. But... So, so I found that very different. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, but, but you, you ha, what was your entry into the tackle trade? What on earth made you de- decide decide to join the industry? Um, well, that was um, that came about when it was an opportunity that presented itself in the form of a box advert, a PO box advert. Sorry, an advert with a PO box address. So for people who probably don't remember those sort of things, um, so companies that wanted to remain anonymous for whatever reason, they would put an advertisement in, and then it would say reply to a PO box. And so I was I was fishing carp fishing with a couple of friends, and at the time I was probably a bus driver, I think, in London, and not too far from Tottenham Hale, actually, that you mentioned earlier. And um, what route? I used to do the W15 through Hackney, uh, Dalston. Um, I used to do the 444, which went out Chiddingford Mountway. See, they're since, they're since my days. I used to go to Tottenham Mail on the 623 trolley bus from Manor House. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so we were sat there one evening and Carp Talk, Chris Balls magazine, had been out for, I think it may even have come out that summer. This was about 94 and um, you'll probably know exactly what year it came out. Um, if, if you don't, it's the first time I've ever got yeah, you on any bit of fishing trivia. <laughs> I, I, I don't, but I'm in a position where I could Google it and lie. <laughs> a man of your integrity would never do that. So um, so we were reading Carp Talk and passing it between us. Lovely summer's evening, a couple of cans of beer, and we're, you know, we're happy with life. And... Um, uh, actually, no, I was an ink mixer in Glasgow. That's right. I'd come home from work. I'd flown into Stansted. So I used to commute up to Glasgow every week, Monday morning on a plane out of Stansted, come back Friday and then go fishing for the weekend. And we were sat there and uh, we were reading this cart magazine or, or flicking through the news reports. And there I was the end of this row of three uh, happy carp anglers, uh, Sipion R. Carlsberg. And um, I, I saw this advert for a, a job in um, warehousing distribution, I think was the name, or maybe warehouse packing, but it said for a well-known fishing tackle company. So I thought, oh, this is this is interesting. I fancy a go at that. You know, I, 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 I hadn't decided what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did know that whatever I did, I wanted to be happy at and enjoy um, and every job that I'd done, I had always, I always had this maxim that if I ever woke up one day and I didn't want to go to work, then that was the time I had to change my job. I owed it to myself because we all spend so much of our time working of our life. That if you've got a job you hate, it's a bit of a, uh, a weight round your neck is, you know? So, uh, I'd got to the point with this ink mixing in Glasgow and, uh, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was colour matching inks um, on, on these massive presses and, um, and I'm actually colour blind. So I found it a little bit challenging. And I had sort of... <laughs> Black and white were okay. But... <laughs> yeah, exactly. And some of the colours like pale greys and creams, like a, we used to print a lot of um, whiskey cases like for White and McKay and a lot of the whiskey oh, yeah. companies, like, like, they use a pale cream in the background. Now, mm. 
pale creams are very, very, even for well, um, uh, a fully optically um, 2020 color visioned color matches, a cream is a challenging color to mix because it's mostly white, but it has tiny hues of warm red, for example, to give it this, this cream sort of background. And if you are running a color like that and you need to make a change on it, the percentage increments of what you might have to add or dilute to change it are tiny. So um, it was it was very challenging and um, presses, when, when ink um, printing presses are being run, if they stop, the downtime costs fortunes. So the pressure on you to try and get it right and get it running is enormous. And, and I took it as far as I could actually for a colorblind color matcher. Um, but when I saw this advert, I thought, you know, a one-legged high jumper. I knew my time was up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I thought, oh, do you know what? It'd be a lot less stressful to work in in a warehouse packing fishing orders. Um, so I applied for this job, and um, I, I quietly tore the the part of the page out without saying anything to my two friends because I didn't want them applying as well and competing. Um, so then I I sent off my CV and. Didn't hear anything for a very, very long time. And then one evening, I was in the kitchen in my house. I was a shared house, actually. I was in in, in Shearing near Harlow. The phone rang. Lovely sun, Sunday evening. All the windows were open. And um, picked up the phone. And uh, this voice said, hello, Peter Drennan from Oxford. He didn't say from Oxford. He said, Peter Drennan, Oxford, in his, in his a much more... Um, uh, educated tone than I could muster, and it, you're not very well. Brogue. It is Oxford brogue, exactly. And um, and it took me aback for a second because I couldn't quite—I'd forgotten about this application, and it was probably three months have passed or something. And I thought, well, I didn't make that one. Um, but once the penny dropped, and I gathered myself, and uh, oh yes, um, switched my 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 delivery to something far more pro- professional than a lazy Sunday evening, and realising what the stakes were, and I managed to get myself an interview with Peter Drennan in Oxford. Um, and I didn't get the job, which really took me aback because I've got a terrible CV. But if I can meet somebody and talk to them, whenever I've got an interview, I've always got the job. But my no, my CV had always let me down. So I managed to get the interview and I thought, well, this is it. You know, I'm going to go and get this job. I went down and met Peter and had a lovely... Um, long chat and an interview and a look round and everything and um, and he told me afterwards uh, very sorry you haven't got the job and I was mortified because a I thought I had sealed the deal and b I loved the setup and the people and the look and the feel of everything and uh, he told me that um, I wasn't the right person for the job and he had chosen somebody else from Thatcham who um, who is my my good friend Dave Elliott and he had given him the job instead um, and I. Yeah, I was really set back by that. And I thought, well, I, from that point, it became my mission to pester Peter endlessly until he gave me a job of some sort in his empire. So I would I would ring him up almost bi-weekly. Um, he had invited me to stay in touch, actually. And I'd say, you know, have you, along the lines of, have you thought of something I can do for you, Peter? You know, is there somewhere I can fit into your company? And and I kept at it with a tenacity, and um, it was probably the following year. It went on for some time, this, and eventually he called me up out of the blue and said, um, I've had an idea. Come down and see me. So I went down to see Peter again, had another interview of sorts, and he told me of his idea to set up 
a carp fishing brand and I took the job and between us we went on to create ESP and a little bit of a tiny little bit of fishing history. That's uh, incredible because you know I worked for Diver for a few years. Yes. And yeah. um I was invited to go for an interview and and didn't get the job. Oh, oh really? Oh, I didn't I know this. No, 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 not many people do. And uh, my old pal Dave Roberts got the job. Um yeah. Also known as Shifty, yes. and uh, John Middleton, who was Diver's sales director at the time, phoned me and said, uh, "You didn't get the job because Dave Roberts has got more experience of selling bits and pieces, and we're going to expand our range of bits and pieces more." Anyway, six months later, I phoned up and said, "Right, you, you, now we're, we're making a new area, and, and, and we want you to. Uh, oh no, we're, we're going to make a new area, and we've got a vacancy now. <clears throat> Are you still free? I went and worked for him, and, and the rest, as they say, is, is history." Wow! So, that, right. so, so that's you. You spent. Obviously, that time in carp fishing, things were changing dramatically. And it's a question I've always wanted to ask someone and never has up until never have up until now. Do you think the style of fishing changed and the emphasis on carp and, and rig safety changed because the materials that produced that were created and therefore created a demand for fish welfare or do you think there was a demand for fish welfare and then things like lead clips and etc etc um were safe rigs do you think they were created because of a demand or do you think the items created the demand it's a great question um I think, That's why I've never asked it before, because I've never thought of anyone that could answer it, possibly. I think that um, there, there was an element of both things happening. There was certainly an awareness in the angling community that things like... Um, so if you cast your mind back to early to mid-80s, there were rigs that were um, in print, which might have, for example, a swivel joining the main line and the hook link, and then to that swivel a clip link would be attached to which the lead weight was attached, yep. which is, is clearly a, a fixed lead setup because the lead is unable to. So there were there were legitimate concerns um, pre this revolution. Um, and I think certainly some of these things were developed to address that. So say, for, for example, the, the lead clip evolved by having from from an actual leg clip to having a hole through it to which you could tie the swivel into place through to the design which we now use which which I was brought to the market which had a pegging system to lock it in place but all of those were each step was designed to further improve the safety of the rig by making it easier to jettison the weight should it become um, snagged so I, I think it's twofold, Keith. I think there was a general awareness in the angling community before this, but by the time you got to the latter end of the 90s, carp fishing was undergoing uh, its, well, it's not even its second or third revolution, if you ca- if you counted them all back, but it was certainly in another revolution. If you, the, the last one previous to that would have been the boilies and the hair rigs in the, in the early 80s. And by the late 90s, it was undergoing another revolution, not just in terms of tackle, but in terms of availability of big fish and um, emerging 
superstars uh, uh, like, for example, Terry Hearn catching um, Mary at a record weight. Um, the public, uh, not public, the angling imagination was fervently alight at that stage with potential. It was a, it was an incredibly exciting time to be a carp angler, the late 90s. It seemed that there were numerous 40-pounders around in different counties. And for me to be exposed to that as just an angler on that level alone would have been intoxicating. But to also be in the angling um, sector, development sector, mixing with some of my peers, not my peers, some people that were luminaries that I massively and still do look up to and respect to, um, was was an incredible moment for me in my life. And when I think back, you know, some of my fondest glows in my in my memories come from those sort of late 90s um, sort of uh, period. But I think for me, I know you didn't ask this, but I, I, it, for me personally, it was also... A, Don't worry, it, I would have. It was, it was coming. It was a very... Um, it was a. It was such an incredibly rewarding time because I was suddenly exposed to masters of angling from all different areas, and and I include yourself in that area. You know, I was able to have lunch with people like you and learn um, how matches were fished at Port Meadow and and tactics for perch and so on. And and I could fish with John Everard or. Um, or I could speak to Matt Hayes, or I could talk to Terry, or I'd go into the office and there was Gary Barclow, but Gary Barkley, um, Pete Brownlow, Richard Norris, Peter Drennan himself, Peter Stone, and all of these people became part of my everyday, literally my everyday life. And I've always been very much a sponge for information. You know, I'm, I've, I'm always quite happy to sit back and not say anything and let the, the wiser, more learned, um, uh, intelligent people speak and then take what I can from it, you know. But I love learning stuff. And so you, can't, you couldn't imagine a more fertile learning ground than being surrounded by all of those people who weren't even in the carp fishing community. So I was learning about Daiwa Dorking and, and how, how matches were fished by Pete Brownlow, who was brilliant at what he did. And then you would have people come into the office, everyone from... Um, Alan Scott Horn, so you know all the people that, that you know really well. But and and I, I, they would bring me usually out for a little bit of light entertainment. They'd bring that carp angler up from production and <laughs> bring him into lunch, give him a posh sandwich, and <laughs> so I, I would come up and uh, enjoy the posh sandwich. And um, and and you know I was always a, a they would, they would um, treat me as an object of, of fun and 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 light derision sometimes because I was a carp angler which was always considered a bit of a blunt instrument I suppose but I I loved it you know and, and I would go fishing on the rivers at the weekends with some of these guys and the stuff that I learned will always stay with me the stuff that I learned from you from all these people has served to make me a, a, a more rounded um, angler and and you know even in my carp fishing a lot of the stuff still serves me really well today because there's a lot of things that I do and can do and fall back on in my carp fishing armory which were seeded and cultivated in that period from talking to match anglers and specimen hunters and so on so I know I've gone right off track um, I hope no, I no. your question but certainly the the evolution and the revolution and the carp safety was a twofold thing um, so it's supply and demand and there was also um, there was a concern within the angling community that it needed to be addressed. It, it's a really interesting topic as well, because you know, nowadays 
the the the, the branches of the sport are so much more amorphous. For, for example, you know, match anglers have learnt so much from carp fishing with regard to rigs, um, accuracy, etc., mm. etc. Whereas carp anglers have probably learnt more about feeding from match anglers than they would ever have done if they'd have just carried on, never spoken to a match angler or, or, or seen a match. You get people like Mark Bartlett that that are crossovers. You know, they're the cash guys yeah. of fishing, aren't they? Yeah. Because yeah. they they. They've taken their expertise at one branch, put it into another, and then mixed the two together. I mean, what an awesome, you know, you wouldn't want to draw next to Mark Bartlett every week, whether you're fishing a carp match, a match, or whatever. And and, and it, it, it's this complete um, holistic approach, really, to the sport. Yeah, it's really interesting. Absolutely, that. And, yeah. yeah. And, and, Sorry, go on. Go on. Um, I was just going to say someone like Martin Bowler is a great exponent yeah. example of that. And I remember the first few times that I went out with Martin, he was because he was originally pretty much solely a carp angler. And then he started to diversify into other sectors. So he took his carp brain into barbel fishing. And so I remember very vividly going down to a stretch he took me to of, of the ooze. And, um, and I had imagined that it would be, um, traditional barbel fishing at that time, which was tips up, tight lines out to the, to the runs in between the stream of weed and so on. Martin went in there with, with tutti fruity boilies, um, back leads and short hook links and his rod down low with it almost parallel to the surface of the water and a slack line. I was like, yep. when, when he was showing me all this, I mean, this was groundbreaking then. And I was I was really astonished, and he said, "No, this is how you do. This is how you need to do it." And so we did it. Caught barbel, and and you're so you're you're so right. The masters of angling are the ones that are that are adept at learning from disciplines and mixing disciplines. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's like it's, you watch something like um, MMA. You know, you you go back to um, the days when MMA and UFC was first founded. Um, and it was all about finding that one style of, of, of martial arts that was superior. And what they learned was there wasn't one. The ultimate fighting style was a combination of different styles. And then it's the same with the ultimate angler, I suppose. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And, 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 and now we're, we're sort of onto fishing and the quality of angling. I'm, I'm going to mention... Uh, your book it's called rolling in the deep and, and there are some wonderful tales in there and and don't worry i'm not going to be a spoiler or anything assuming it's not is it sold out yet uh, it's actually getting that way yeah it's um i'm right. thinking this will oh. be the last push science proves quality sleep is vital to your mental emotional and physical health the sleep number 360 smart bed senses your movements and automatically adjusts to help keep you both effortlessly comfortable. And it's temperature balancing, so you stay cool. So you're at your best for yourself and those you care about most. Life-changing sleep, only from Sleep Number. Don't miss our weekend special. Save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Queen, now only $19.99. Ends Thursday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Are you thinking of starting a podcast? Whether yours is about gaming, K-pop, business, or reality TV, there's no podcast too niche or too broad. And there are listeners out there who love what you love. So let's hear it. Starting a podcast with Acast is easy. You can create, grow, and make money from your show across all podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Head over to Acast.com to get started for free. 
Oh, well, I won't, I won't be a spoiler then. Um, but the, the core story, it's written in a, in a very unusual way. Um, the core story is epic. How, how do you decide what fish you're going to target? Um, uh, thanks for the kind words on the book, Keith. I really appreciate that. And the, the, the fishing, the actual, it's a very good question. Again, for me, it's the aesthetic proportions look um, of the fish, how a fish, how I look at, so if I, if I, if, if, if I was to see a fish and it wouldn't matter if it was 75 pounds, if that fish to me didn't inflame a degree or a large degree of, um, uh, passion and desire, um, or then it wouldn't matter. I would never fish for it. And there's, there's quite a few fish in the country that are like that right now that I don't really have any interest in. Um, but if I saw a fish that I just stare at the picture and I am in in awe and just awe and wonder, wonder, and you look at the scales and you look at the coloration, you look at the shape of the tail. I have this big thing I call it tail porn. I have this real thing about the <laughs> the tail, the tail. Of I'm the not going to Google that. Don't worry. <laughs> Delete your history if you do. Um, but it's um, it's the, the shape of of a carp's tail. Um, is eminently desirable to me. So I caught a carp just um, just recently, and um, its tail it was like this rigid heart shaped um, with but with bird edges and and slightly whitened edges. It just even when you held the fish up, gravity didn't affect it. It, st- it stood out proud and in this perfect formation. It was massive fish with a massive tail and. That, so when I'm looking at a fish, I'm looking at different things like the tail, the colour, the shape, um, the shape of the mouth and the head. And then you're thinking about where it lives. Um, so the fish comes first, but then you're going to start thinking about where it lives and does it get caught very often. So if it lives in a lake which is maybe hard to fish and the fish doesn't get caught very often, then you start to tick boxes of eminent desirability. You've got if you've got a fish which looks incredible when you set eyes on it and it lives in a lake which is maybe a bit hard to fish and it doesn't get caught very often then you start to tick all of the boxes of very few fish which get elevated to the top of the tree if you see what i mean so um yeah so it's not about size at all um obviously it's nice if they're big because we all love big fish let's not lie about that um, but there's, you know, I've seen a fish just recently in a lake, um, in Northamptonshire, which I've got my name down for. It's a mirror carp and it's 45 pounds, which is a big fish, very big fish. But, um, it wouldn't matter to me if that fish was 35 pounds, I would fish a season or two for it because it's incredible to look at. So that's mm. where, that's where it starts at for me. Now, I remember us talking on tight lines, which, which is, was, was a long time, must be getting on for 20 years ago, probably 15 years ago, I guess. Um, and, and you were then fishing a lake not far from the county you just mentioned, possibly even in that county. And, and there was a fish in, in there. Well, there was supposed to be a fish in there. You weren't even sure it existed, but you were fishing for it. Yeah, I mean, the, the element of, of mystery is at the very core of probably the angling in all of us. And that's why 
I can vividly remember, even before I became an angler, I was just obsessed with looking into the water on these family walks to see if I, you're straining your eyes to look past the reflection and into the layers of water to see what might be down there. And I think, I think if you turn that on its head, the, the, the type of angling which I find least exciting is when I can see the bottom everywhere. And like, so for, for, for example, um, <laughs> actually it turned out to be a brilliant day's fishing, but I went grayling fishing with, uh, with some friends uh, a couple of winters ago. And it was about two foot deep, really racy. Uh, it was in a housing estate somewhere near, I can't even remember where it was. And um, and because I could see the bottom everywhere and there weren't, I couldn't see any fish, even though they were there, as we proved, <laughs> I, I was amazed. I was like, why do we go, Why do we want to fish just, here? There's no fish at all. They said, just. Throw some sweet corn in and watch it disappear. That's how you know they're there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, but but I do like the mystery of, of not being able to see. And I think that whole, what might be that possibility is is at the core of what makes us um anglers and you know so when i when i think of lakes you know i I have actually spent far too many years of my life fishing for myths that didn't turn out to be there unfortunately and 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 even recently someone said you're catching a lot more big carp than you used to and i and i and i thought about it and i thought yeah that's probably because I'm not chasing myths or rainbows so much anymore. I'm going for fish that I know are there. Although I would still like, I'd still do, you know, some exploratory sessions. But yeah, I think that whole element of mystery is a huge part of what makes us anglers and what might be down there. The possibility of dreams, you know, and, and every now and again. So the lake I'm fishing at the moment, I caught a carp there, which I still say is one of the very best carp I caught this year, no question about it. It was 17 pounds and four ounces. And it's in the scheme of things, it's probably, um, so what's, it's, it's only about, it's nearly a quarter of the size of the biggest, right? So the biggest is an absolute whale in this lake. So it's a, it's a tiny fish. Anyway, this carp, 17 pounds, four ounces, as old as the hills keep. It had um, cataracts, it had, a blackened old mouth, it had withered old fins, and nobody, and this lake is immensely pressured, nobody had ever seen it before, and this carp is probably, well, it's, it's the, it must be the oldest fish in the lake, you look at it, it's so old and crusty, no one ever knew it had been caught before, and that to me is one of my biggest achievements this year, and I think, yeah, why did I catch that, I caught that on casters and chop worm, you know, well, if you're going to catch an odd fish that doesn't like getting caught very much, that's probably how you're going to catch it, and and it was you know so they don't have to be big to inflame amazing excitement oh, i was holding this fish i've got two guys in my swim and they're they you know they they were i think they thought i was quite mental because i'm holding the fish which in the scheme of things isn't particularly big but to me it doesn't matter how big it is it's how rare and special it is that's yeah you know we mentioned earlier on you mentioned it and i i carried on with the story about how having to work at fishing became my fishing. So instead of fishing matches, which was my fishing, I fished for films for tight lines, which was my fishing. And and I found it difficult to do any other kind of fishing. You now do um, tutorials and and, and sessions that are work. Are, Are you able to isolate those and treat them completely differently? Yes, I am. I am luckily. I mean, when when it comes to tutorials, I don't tend to fish very often because that's I, a good call. Yeah, if you're going to do a job properly, I'm obsessed with quality of service and 
like you, I'm a perfectionist. In if I'm going to do something, I have to do it properly. And very quickly, I learned that combining it's like even like this week, I've been out shooting a magazine article. Um, and in the old days, you know, some time ago, the, the the editor or the shooter, the photographer would come out and they bring their tackle. Nowadays, yeah. they don't. They like no, I can't have the distractions. I've got to photograph this job properly. And my my attitude to tutorials is is exactly the same. And and unfortunately, a lot of people have started doing tutorials with a view to getting more time on the bank, and that's not yes. right. You can't you no. can't do that. Your your customer has to come first, second, and third. Absolutely. And if you're fishing, how can you dedicate? 100, 110% of your time, effort, and attention to them. You can't. So that that's one way. I mean, I keep so that stays separate in that element. Um, then I've got my fishing, which is um, filming based, which um, I do obviously have rods out while I'm doing it, and I find that pretty straightforward, quite quite simple. And that's probably only a couple of um, shoots a month. And then after that, I've got my normal fishing where I totally channel myself into trying to catch the fish I'm trying to catch. And it's, although that is, if you look at it, if you strip it down, that is still work fishing because I have um, a profile I write in, in Anglian Times, Total Carp and Carpology every single month. So I've got a lot of material to produce. But um, when I'm just fishing i don't feel like it's work at all my wife bless her she calls it work she says oh you're going to work tomorrow and i'm thinking you know i'm a lucky guy i'm actually going fishing for two nights and my wife calls it work and she makes me some sandwiches but um (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's, it's not oh you're going fishing again so she she sees it as work because it is part of the the reason that i'm fortunate enough to be sponsored or my whole profile so it all revolves around the same thing but when i go fishing i don't think of it as work i'm totally focused on what i want to do i'm loving being outdoors i'm recording the hours on my phone or whatever i'm doing um and just totally immersed in it and uh i think that i think that the reason i'm so fabulously excited by it is because like that 17 pound carp that i just um mentioned to you that that's the, the fishing that I do is not size um, orientated in its entirety because now if you a lot of people come into carp fishing they do it for a while and then they drift away because they they think it's all about big fish now if, if every time you catch a carp and it's not big and you're disappointed in your if you feel disappointment then you're not going to really enjoy your sport because none of us are lucky enough to catch really big fish every time we cast out and catch a fish. Yeah. So, so if if your underlying emotion through the period of of, of um, participating in the sport is one of disappointment, then it's probably not the one for you. And a lot of people do, you know, they take up golf and they they drift away. Um, for me, I think because I look at a seventeen pound carp on the mat and I think seventeen pound, but it's still a it's a, you can't say that's a small fish. Look at it. It's, it's two and a half foot long. And it, you know, and it's, so I think that. And it's as old, probably older than a 70 pounder. Absolutely. It will be in a lot of cases. I mean, that fish that I, I mentioned to you earlier, I nearly said how old I think it was, but it'd certainly be over 40 years old, you know, yep. which is, which is incredible to think of that, that, that when I passed my driving test, he was swimming around in that lake. 
when I opened my Christmas presents on uh, in in the snow on in 1973. I, I didn't open them in the snow. We did have a house, but um, you know, and in 1973, <laughs> that fish was swimming around in there. All of those yeah. those milestones in your life that you think back to. Um, the first time you did that special thing with that girl when you were 16 or whatever it is, those milestones, all of those that you can think of in your life, that fish was swimming around in that lake then. And when I think of it like that, I think, wow, that's, yeah. that's incredible. And, and I size, think, go, size goes on the back burner. It does. Yeah. And I think yeah. because size goes on the back burner for me, I think that's why I'm genuinely obsessed with carp fishing and, and I'm so glad that I am, Keith, because I am in at the sharp end. If it did go dry on me, I'd be in a bit of a fix. I couldn't imagine having to fake it. You know, that would be no, no good. You know, I'd have to find something else to do. But I'm very, very lucky that every time I go fishing, I am I am almost incandescent with excitement. And, and that's yeah. if I was going fishing for doubles tomorrow with you and we were going to go and put some rods out down down the valley or or if I was going, you know, on my campaign where I'm chasing a massive fish or whatever it is, I just, I just love it, and I can't sleep the night before I go. Well, no, and, and I used to be like that, going to work fishing, like you're, you're saying. But you know, if if I was going on a shoot for tight lines, or I've I've recently done some videos of fishing TV, they're not out yet, but I've I've, I've been working on them, and I, I, the planning, the execution. And, and just getting there, I and mean, I haven't let them know I'm really excited because they might not want to pay me. But <laughs> it, I, I get I get so excited about going fishing, and 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 I don't mean this in the wrong way. Having to be good at it, I don't mean having to be good at fishing, but having to be good at doing that job. Because if I wasn't, the crap, the film's crap, or the recording's crap, yeah. or whatever. So you know, you, you have to put like if if I. If, if I fished a winter league, this is the time for winter leagues, and I drew a peg that I knew I couldn't win, that I knew I couldn't win the section, I would look and think, right, this is a seven-point peg. I'm going to get seven points today. And if I got eight, I was over the moon. And if I got right. four, I, I went home kicking myself. But it was the excitement looking forward to it, the planning and everything that goes into it. I'm, I'm not the greatest planner. I'm, I'm a terrible practiser. But... Um, the actual participation on the day, I, I like to think I'm up there, you know, yeah. with anybody when it comes to, to, to how I do things. Oh, I and and yeah, like, like you say, you, you, you get really excited. Um, just for that. And, and now, now back on your fishing, and, and I'm going to ask you an unusual question now, probably. But, but when you're, you're, when you're deciding um, the, the fish you're going to catch or, or when, when you turn up at your lake, what do you think is the most important part of your armory? Do you think it's uh, locate yours is your armory, not what other people should do? Are, are you concerned about more about location within the lake, about the quality of your bait, um, the, the the quality of the rigs, or the effort that you put in? Which of those do you think catches you the most fish? Uh, unquestionably, it all starts um, with you, with your senses, with your eyes and your ears. And so, at the moment, uh, the fishing on the, the lakes. Uh, in fact, it's it's similar. Carp fishing on most lakes is pretty similar this time of year. The activity from the fish is very nocturnal and will remain so um, in in most cases until spring. And it's all about getting yourself in the right position. So, although I use the fishing right now as an example obviously this applies whether it's spring summer whatever it's all about finding where the fish are and putting yourself exactly 
or as near as you can if there's other people in the way to that area. Um, so, for example, but it all comes down to how how bad you want it. So, at the moment, the fishing on on the lake that I'm fishing is very, very, very hard. I think there's been two fish caught in the last five weeks by a 35-man syndicate. And um, so it's, it's been very, very testing. But um, I've managed eight in that same period of time. And the reason for that is that the fish activity is it's almost entirely nocturnal. So that means that most people, when they get to the lake, they're like, right, it's going to be dark in an hour. I've got to find a spot, get set up, get the bivy up, make sure I'm dry, make sure I'm, I'm warm, make sure I've got the football on at half seven, etc., etc. And I used to do a bit of that um, until I realised it was very, very ineffective. And now, I mean, typical session for me, I mean, even this week, I turn up at the lake at three, two or three in the afternoon, and this week it was raining, so I've got waterproofs on and I've got a handheld uh, golf umbrella and I will walk around listening in the dark, well, through the afternoon, well, basically until I see a fish or hear a fish show. And there's been numerous sessions where I've done that from two in the afternoon until midnight. I won't get any of the gear out of the van. I'll cook my gear in the, I'll cook my dinner, sorry, in the back of the van or do an omelette or something, then I'm back on it. All of my gear will stay in the van because I know that if I set up in the wrong place, I may as well go home. So there's there's 40 fish in the lake. It's 20 acres. If if I'm not where they are, I'm what, what's the point in even being there? I'm not going to fish in hope. I want to fish with expectation. So I will walk around and if you know and and literally I stand there in the rain for hours in the dark waiting to hear one fish because at night you know even when it's raining. The sound does travel quite a long way, and luckily, oh, you can tell, you can tell, yeah. you can directionalize yeah. it. If that's even a word, probably isn't. Um, yeah, and, it is and now. yeah, it's now, <laughs> and uh, you know, and 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 all of my fish that I've been lucky enough to catch in the, in this autumn period have all come to dark casts in the dark to an area where I've seen and or heard a fish, and then use my senses to gauge roughly how far is it 75 yards out is it 90 yards out is it you know and then making an assessment putting my rods in the area and that's that is so it's enormous effort and when i come home at the end of it i am rinsed out um but it depends how much you want it and you know i mean like i just this month alone i've managed not this month but just since the first of november we're out but the results have been phenomenal and lots of lots of numerous 40 pound carp um so it's been it's been very very rewarding very tiring um but the question was yes yeah, so from so the question was the most important thing and, and that probably illustrates it. it you have to be in the right spot and in the winter it's even more important because as you know better than anyone the fish will be in in smaller and smaller areas oh. You know, Tell me. Think, think of a winter league on the canals that you know about yeah. so well, or whatever well, it is. Think, think about fishing matches at Gold Valley in the winter. Yeah. You know, when, when the, 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 the body of fish are in a tiny part of the lake. You, you can catch fish from other parts of the lake, but there's, there'll be big accumulations of them. And, and you're talking about a much different scale now. You're talking about, you're talking about 40 fish in, in, in 20 acres. I'm talking about 400 fish in five acres. You know, and, and it's maybe even more than that and and but there's 
there's areas that are devoid. That's the oakfish cruises around in the afternoon, but yeah. in, on the law of averages, there ain't going to be many out of 40 swimming around a long way. Absolutely. So, so it's location and effort, first of all. Yeah. Quality of bait. How important is quality of bait? Quality of bait is incredibly important and i always think about it very very simply because uh, i don't i'm not a bait expert i just know what works i don't know why things yeah. work necessarily but i know what i like so or not more importantly what the fish like but um i think um i always think of it in in terms of if that fish is not willing to open its mouth then you aren't going to catch it so mm. once you adopt that mindset why would you use let's talk about boilies briefly why would you use a boilie that is um fairly low in quality cutting corners in cost because if you put something that is as good as you can get it in front of the fish and you've got more chance of it opening its mouth then that is when it comes down to that it is very granular that's that's what it comes down to and so whether mm. i'm using i use naturals an awful lot i mean i've spent well into four figures well every year well into four figures on on maggots and casters um my wife i'm talking more quietly now so my wife can't hear me um she's in the next room <laughs> but it, it, uh, enormous amounts of money because in certain situations they are an enormous enormous edge but whatever it is think about how much your haircuts cost him mate don't be guilty <laughs> don't be, don't 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 be if there's a bit of color involved there'll be a lot of that yeah don't be guilty <laughs> But the, the quality of bait is absolutely paramount. And that would have been one of the things I would have taken from yourself, from the match guys at Drennan. You know, I mean, you look at when you were fishing um, uh, the match scene and so on, you, you would have spent a lot of time on bait prep, wouldn't you? Cool. It's not off. I mean, you could write a, a book on bait prep, couldn't you, Keith? I could. I could probably write a small book on making good casters. Right. Well, so I would buy that. I would buy that because that would save me a lot of money if I could make good casters myself. <laughs> because it would take you a lot of effort. <laughs> did, you, did you used to cultivate your own? Uh, well, turn me on casters. Well, I don't forget I worked in tackle shops for a long time. So I used to turn casters for me and hundreds of others. I mean, some week when I worked in, in tackle, my first tackle shop that I worked in in East London, we were doing 1,000 pints a week. Cool. Um, because we we were wholesaling them, but we would do two hundred and fifty pints on a on a Saturday, and on a Friday night, and, and one hundred and fifty two hundred pints on a Saturday. The same when I went to South London, where we weren't wholesaling them, but there were some weeks of the year when I'd have, I'd need two hundred and fifty pints of casters on a Friday night. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, that's it. so. If you could answer a question I've got actually. So if you, yeah, um, well, you can answer any question I've got. But um, so <laughs> if you've got, um, if you're buying casters from a tackle shop and um, yep. they come in from the wholesale supplier in those uh, back sealed, um, I know some shops turn their own, but let's you know most shops aren't. Yep. Are those casters dead? Uh, you can tell quite easily when you open them if they go grey. Yes. Oh, okay, right. Because one of the match guys in the shop said he wouldn't use them because he said they were dead. They were totally inert. They were still working really well for me. No, they didn't go grey. They kept their colour. So that means they're alive. Then they weren't dead. Right. Yeah, okay. They Brilliant. Dead. Fantastic. Yeah. When 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 what what happens is casters change colour like fish change colour with the pigment, and 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 if that pigment doesn't exist, they go grey. 
So a grey caster is a dead caster. But uh, yeah, I, I, what I couldn't do is to tell you how to take a gallon off at once without having several gallons of maggots. Uh, but if you wanted to know how to do your own casters, you need a bit of equipment and you need a bit of room. But uh, yeah, I, 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 we're not talking about casters now. But yeah, but, but the people buy casters now. The quality is miles better than they used to be. And if they're vacuum packed yeah. and taken out of that vacuum within... 48 hours they will be fine and i'll tell you how i know that we used to carry our maggots about to going abroad to ireland to denmark to places like that by putting them in bin liner bags taking all the air out that we could and basically killing the maggots yes and they would be dead they'd be stretched out and dead you take them out the bag two hours late you think that one moved yeah yeah another hour later (laughs) 10 percent of them are moving yeah Three hours later, they're wriggling like they've never been there. And the great thing is, they're as fresh as the minute you tied the knot in the bag. Yes. Because you actually kill them and reincarnate them, they don't age. They're Peter Pans. They they stay exactly as they were when you tied the knot. So you you extend their life as well. Um, Yeah. So anyway. What what do you reckon, Steve? About 24 hours they they could stay suffocated for? What, maggots? And still come back to life, yeah. If, If you suffocate them for a week, you'll lose about 15 to 20%. Oh, is that all? Oh, yeah. Oh, see, I yeah. didn't know you could do it that long. They will then die very quickly. I mean, they don't take much killing after that. Right. Uh, so I wouldn't use those for casters because you'll keep getting skins on them because they will die periodically. Right. Um, but, but yeah, you can certainly, certainly three or four days is no problem at all. Interesting. Very and you don't have to keep them fridged either, as long as you keep them cool. Yeah. Because what makes maggots hot is maggots wriggling. Yes. Friction. If you stop them wriggling, they don't they don't get hot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we're giving too much away in this, mate. This is you know this is this is supposed to be about you fishing, and, and here we are. I'm giving away all the trade secrets. Well, this is gold dust for me, mate. This is gold dust. <laughs> Another few crumbs of wisdom. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. And the the other thing as well, of course, is now dead maggots are very fashionable, aren't they? And, and, and dead maggots are a great feed as as long as you've killed them yourself because you know several people have told me the first one was kenny collings my, my great mate who i fished with for many years lovely bloke sadly lost the fishing now he doesn't go i don't think he goes at all oh, he, no, if he does he, he rarely goes and kenny told me when you're feeding live maggots when they hit the bottom imagine they're gone so right. you've got to keep feeding keep feeding keep feeding keep feeding keep feeding because okay. yeah that they they get in they they get under leaves they still want to get out the light they get into between gravel and fish will start rooting them around you'll see I mean when you feed maggots you will see fish bubbling and you'll swim yeah but you're a carp angler or a bream angler or a tench angler roach angler even yeah. they'll disturb the bottom to dig them out but they don't want to dig why would they want to dig them out and, and cause effort when you can get them to lay on the top which is why in in my match fishing days I used to feed a load of casters and sometimes not even put one on the hook during a match right just fish maggot on the hook because the casters were there oh, to yeah. hold the fish and keep them and hemp you know how many how many anglers feed hemp and caster and never ever put a bit of hemp on the hook why feed it yeah well, well, what are you feeding that for but i i know they used to eat the casters because i'd catch a chub on a red maggot or two red maggots mm. and as you went to unhook it like chub do it it sort of vomit up a handful of of, of, of crushed casters yeah so anyway, that, that's nice. so. There's a little couple of little secrets. I love that, Keith. Thanks for that, mate. <laughs> so, and I also read, and the reason why I asked that question about the list of importance, I recently read a feature that you'd written where you caught your first fish, or of the the fish that was the object of the piece, 
after six moves. Yeah, I mean that in the in the autumn that was that was October, and the fish were much yeah. more active, and they were travelling around a lot more, and they would give themselves away. Um, and yeah, it was it was six moves on on that particular session, and um, by then I was I was pretty much done in. But the, the thing is that most carp anglers won't entertain a move once it's dark. I don't know why that is, even though I probably had a similar mindset once upon a time. But um, they won't move when it's dark, and they certainly won't move if if it's raining. Uh, if, if it's dark and it's raining, then you've got a massive edge if you're willing to do that. And I think that um, the, the listening in the winter. See, I used to have a, um, have a radio on softly or um, or whatever. But um, nowadays, I use a radio during the day. Listen to some of the talk stations. But once it gets to to darkness, everything has to be off. And the the things that the extra fish that just my ears have caught me. You you tune into the sounds of the lake and the night and. I, I don't know, you just, I'm not saying I've got super senses or something, but I definitely hear fish that other people who are much nearer to those fish don't hear because when I, I, I speak to them, they say, oh no, I didn't, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, well, that's, that's, that's sloshed out twice in that corner and he's between me and that corner and he hasn't heard it and then I'll move in there and, and you think, well, but it's, just, it's some of the things that separate the success of, of the return um, are very, very, they're very, very fine lines. And so, so for example, so on this, on this um, lake I've been fishing, there is a guy fishing there, really, really, really effective, good angler historically. He's had a bit of a slow year this year as we all do sometimes, but um, on, on this particular, I hope he's not listening to this, um, but uh, on this particular, he said his name, sorry, he won't know. But on this particular lake, Keith, as I said to you, it's all about nocturnal activities. And and really, it's all about dusk. Now, my entire day is spent waiting, willing dusk to come round because nothing happens until it gets to dusk. So once it gets to that sort of 3.15, 3.30 is coming nearer, earlier and earlier. And once it gets to then, I am, I mean, I'm on it anyway all day, but then I'm super intensified and, I, and I'm, and, and this other guy, um, who is got is older than me with more experience than me, brilliant angler. He does all of his casting, spodding, and everything. He leaves it until dusk, whether it's summer or winter. Now, every dusk he is doing that in his swim, and that means that he will not see anything. Partly because he's preoccupied doing what he's doing, and partly because once you start casting spods and leads out in your swim, they won't show anyway. So that one tiny, tiny detail has kept are two results quite widely apart. And sometimes, you know, the smallest things can make the biggest differences. And you just got to try and be aware of them. But yeah, six times on that particular session, I don't know how many people would be willing to do it. I know so, obviously there are people, Dave Lane would probably have moved eight times, uh, or, or Ian Russell. <laughs> um, but uh, Terry Hearn would have only have moved once because he would have got it right the first time. So, um, so you, you know, and I've had syndicate members coming up to me going, oh, I see you moved, you moved around a lot and, and you're catching the fish. We need to be more mobile. We need to, and, I, and I try and temper it by saying, well, yeah, I don't really want them doing the same as what I'm doing. So I try and temper yeah. it by saying, look, what that means is that six times, uh, five times, I got it wrong. I only got it right once. Look at it that way, and they're like, "Oh, right, okay, Good cool." Yeah. yeah. Um... Now we we mentioned at the very start, um, rolling in the deep, 
Um, it was obviously a huge, huge amount of effort to produce that book. Um, is there going to be another one? Uh, <laughs> uh, I got, you know what, it must be um, the, the day for asking about volume two, because I've, I've had numerous questions about this today. And if, um, if I don't die first, there will be a volume two. <laughs> there will be one but uh, or uh, you know um so yes i do intend to do one when um and you're right the first one was an enormous effort and i'm very conscious of the fact that uh, a sequel needs to be worthy and part of the problem i've got is that one of the things that i'm most proud of with volume one is it's non-angling anecdotes and um i've used eight out of ten of my best ones in that first volume. So short of making stuff up, I can't see how volume two is going to be anywhere near as good. So um, it will have more fish in it, but hey, there's plenty of books with fish in them. <laughs> but based based on the title of the first one and the fact you move around a lot, could the title of the second one perhaps be Hello from the Other Side? Oh, I like that. I'm going to write that down now. <laughs> She'll definitely be suing me. <laughs> Yeah, some people won't get that, mate. No, they won't. But I know you did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It would be. I mean, the book is great, and and, and you said you're getting near the end now, the end of 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 numbers. And I know numbers are restricted. I mean, people now, when they self-publish or even some publishers, they say, right, we're we're producing that many. That's how many there is. Um, That's how many there are. there's going to be some people who want who are listening. Is hopefully will want, will want to buy a Christmas present, or will want to advise someone what they want for Christmas, or what they want for their next birthday. Um, how do they get a copy? Um, very grateful for you. Uh, meant no, no, it's, it's, it, 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 this is a public service, mate. Right. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this. To, I'm not saying this to plug your book. Oh, well, there are, and I'm seriously not. There are people that will want to buy it and don't know how. Well, thank you very much. So if, they, if anyone wants to buy a copy of Rolling in the Deep, they can order one directly from me, which means that if they would like me to, I can sign it with a personalised message. If you would like to do that, you can contact me through Instagram, Facebook, or you can go to my website, which is adampenning.co.uk, and you can order securely through there. So, um, yeah, just reach out to me and I can arrange a signed, personalised copy of the book for you. Fantastic. And um, if if the book isn't, if you haven't started clicking already, what is next on the penning agenda? What, what's likely to be your next um, major effort? Uh, that's a great, or just that's keep a, doing what you're doing? That's, that's a really good, uh, another great question, Keith. So um, I've got some very big filming projects which are underway, which are being um, uh, presented as pilots to um, something bigger bodies that hopefully something will come from. Um, so um, don't forget where you learn how be, about being on telly, mate. Uh, but mate, I, if my, my very first <laughs> guest will be you if I ever get so lucky. <laughs> so, <laughs> Listen, Cocker, we've done our time. Okay, it's that went um, wow. It does go quick, mate. It's ridiculous, honestly. And, and, and as I say this to almost everybody that, that's been on board the boat, I, I don't talk to you enough, and I should, and I'm, I'm very remiss at doing things like that. But uh, And I do miss talking to my, my old pals from, from, from the past of, of the, 
my old tight lines pals and, and fishing pals. But it, this has been a real genuine privilege. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and I've, I've learned so much about you. I, I knew quite a bit because I've read the book. But And, and we've met before and, and done all sorts of things. But it has been an absolute privilege, Adam. Thank you very, very much for joining me. Well, it has been for me as well, Keith. Is um, I, I, I always feel... Um, I, one of my biggest failings in life, and there are a lot of them, is, is my lack of ability to... I don't even bring my own mother, bless her, as, as often as I should. So, yes, we should we should all try and make an effort to stay in touch more, because life is short. Maybe we could even go and trot a river this winter. Well, who knows? That would be nice. Who knows? That would be nice. There's potential for that. <laughs> OK, mate. Keith, you're an absolute gentleman, and it's been an honour to be on. Thank you ever so much. Lovely talking to you, as always. We'll be in touch. Cheers, Adam. Thank you, mate. Bye-bye. Thanks, mate. My sincere thanks to carp angler supreme Adam Penning for joining me on the latest voyage on my strange boat. Please don't forget to rate, like, follow and subscribe to the podcast and join me again for our next journey on board the strange boat. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.